Well, I am really excited to be here this morning with you guys. Um, we'll go ahead and do the Bibles. If anybody needs a Bible, we can just, we pass those out here. Can you, do you guys do that? Yeah, all right. If anybody needs a Bible, we can raise your hand. We'll be in Mark uh, chapter 3. And I don't know if you guys have looked at this passage yet this summer. I know we're doing a common series and we are kind of bouncing around to different places. So Ben Hardman, the pastor here, is actually at Midtown this morning. So we're doing kind of a swap. Um, so we're in the same series and this is the main passage for this series, the Make series. And I'm excited to just share a little bit about um, how this has been impacting me and the, the message that, that God's put on my heart wanted to show you a picture first of my family, just so you can kind of get to know us a little bit. So I got three boys, um, Jude's the oldest, Caleb's in the middle, and Emmett is our nine-month-old. Uh, we're finished. This is it. <laughs> this is our family. Uh, and Caleb's here with me today. He's down in the, uh, in the, in the kids' uh, program, so that's awesome. And I'm, I've been in the lead pastor of Grace Midtown for 10 years, and similar to Grace Marietta, there was a Baptist church that was um, still alive, but just kind of waning and invited Grace to partner. And so there was this merger that happened. So um, we were, Grace Midtown was kind of birthed out of that uh, a number of years ago, similar to, to Grace Marietta here. And I've been there for 10 years and just pastored. We've grown and seen God do all kinds of stuff. Um, but there, there has been a sense over this last year that there's a transition for me. So I'll be working with the Grace family more. There's seven churches in the Grace family, and we've got a foundation kind of in the middle of that, and everybody gives 5% to our common mission together. So it's raising up next generation leaders, planting churches, and catalyzing Jesus movements in the Muslim world. That's something that all of the churches in the Grace family are pursuing together. So I'll be serving in that capacity and just as a quick kind of testimony, I know you guys are just constantly renovating this place. Every time I come, something new's happened. I know there's some vision on the, on the horizon to continue to make much of this property and this space to be good stewards, to reach the community. I just wanted to show you a couple pictures of our property um, because this is, ties into the, the message this morning. Um, this was an old warehouse. I don't know if you, you guys have been to uh, Grace Midtown recently. We just opened this on June 9th, but this was a old warehouse. We bought this demolition company. We were growing as a church, and we didn't have space for kids. We were, were packing out these services, and so God led us to this property, and it was a demolition company, Price and Sons Demolition, um, which demolition companies are hard to turn into churches. <laughs> I mean, it was very industrial, bare bones, and the, the, the picture in the vision God gave us was this is a place known for tearing things down, for demolishing, for deconstructing. And we felt like God was saying, this is the perfect place to, to have a church, which is all about building things up, renovating, renewing. And God put these passages on our heart from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, talking about God's people being rebuilders, restorers of the broken walls, rebuilders of, of families and neighborhoods. And so we went in with that vision, and it was kind of a sudden thing where we said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. There was a yes that we said to God. We saw some breakthroughs, and God opened up some doors. This is the path for us. So it was sudden, but then it was a slow work to actually see it come to pass. It was about seven years from the time we bought the property until the time that we finally renovated it the way that we 
um, we felt like God laid on our heart. So this, this was an old empty warehouse. This was just a barren asphalt um, kind of place. There's a railroad track that used to go through it that's now going to be turned into the belt line. So that's pretty amazing. We did not plan that. That happened just towards the very end of the project. And what we've called this is the Garden City because we really wanted it to look like a picture of the kingdom of God. We see at the end of, of the story in Revelation that the, the Garden of Eden has become this city. It's the garden and the city coming together. And so this is just um, something I'm just still kind of in, uh, in, in shock and surprise that it's happened. And I want to encourage you because there was a suddenness to it, but then it was a slow work to, to, to fulfill it. And there's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled or a dream come to pass is a tree of life. And that's what we're tasting and experiencing as a community right now. And I just want to encourage you that the vision God's given you as a church um, to just continue to pursue that, continue to labor towards that. I know you guys have such a heart for the community and there's some fruit that's beginning to happen. I know that this church is a big blessing to the Grace family. Um, it really matters what's happening here. People hear about what's happening in this church and it encourages the rest of the churches. Um, personally, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I just want to encourage you with this, the worship culture. I just appreciate, Tyler, the way you're leading and the whole band just creating a space to really experience the presence of God. I mean, that is, this is huge to how God births his work in our life. To just say, I'm going to come and set aside time, you know, on a weekly basis to enter in to worship, to allow God to work on our hearts in that time. So I just appreciate you guys. The family is better because of Grace Marietta, and we're excited for what's on the horizon um, for your church. So that's just a little testimony um, of what's going on in our church and, and really this idea of the sudden and slow work of God is the work of making disciples. The series that we're looking at this summer, the Make series, isn't just about us being disciples. It's about us learning how to make disciples. This is a cornerstone, a key DNA point for the Grace family. How do we invest our lives into the lives of others. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13, this is the example we see from Jesus and why we're passionate about it. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, the ministry of Jesus is, is pretty early on. It's just started here, but it says that Jesus goes up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that three things would happen, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He called them that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and that he would give them authority to drive out darkness. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. We're going to specifically look at, at John this morning in a few minutes. Then Andrew, Philip, 
Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this is the example that we get from Jesus. And I just want to give you my definition of discipleship, which really comes out of this description that he says, first, you must be with me. I think that's really significant. And my de- definition of discipleship is, what, it, what does it mean? What, is it, what does it mean to disciple someone, to make a disciple? I think it means to allow someone to get close enough to your life that the ways of Jesus and you rub off onto them. To allow someone to get close enough to your life that the ways of Jesus and you rub off are really imparted into their life. Jesus says in the Gospels 21 times, follow me. Follow me. Come be with me. Watch me. Get close enough to my life that the things in my life will become what's on your life. Buddy, um, who discipled me, used to say this phrase. I'm sure he stole it from someone. Everything's stolen. That's just what I've learned. Everybody's stealing from somebody else. But he used to say this phrase. I think it's so true. More is caught than is taught. More is caught than is taught. Jesus knew this. He says, you're going to learn how to be like me by being with me. I'm not just going to teach you things. I'm going to give you access to my life. And you're going to pick up my ways. In Acts 4.13, it says of the disciples, after Jesus is resurrected and the church is starting to grow, the leaders and authorities are, are questioning him, them and they're saying, how are you doing what you're doing? You're preaching with this boldness and this authority. They saw this movement happening throughout Acts and, and it says about them, they could tell they were ordinary, untrained people. There's nothing special about them. They're ordinary, they're untrained but it has this description in Acts 4.13. It says, but we can tell they've been with Jesus. We can tell they've been with Jesus. Something has changed. There's something on their life because they've been with Jesus. This is discipleship. We're called to experience it. You're in this room probably because someone invested their life into your life. So it starts with us being with someone, but then... The challenge of this series is we're called to give that away, to invest in others. And I just want to give you three quick things on the how of discipleship. So so simple, but I just want to give you three quick things that we see in this passage, just to say, to kind of demystify, like how would we actually do this? And the three things are, it's first to invite and there's hand motions that go with these. John Stallsmith from Grace Neville taught me these hand motions. First, you invite. This is what you see Jesus doing. He's picking people out. He's saying, I'm calling you to go on this journey with me. And this can be a little bit awkward. Like sometimes we're like, okay, oh, I'm not Jesus. Do I, like, do I pick people out? Do I invite people? And what I've experienced is most people are waiting for someone to initiate this kind of relationship with them. I know that when I first came to faith, um, I was, came to faith through Young Life, and then I got involved in Grace. There was just one church at the time, and they had these D groups. That's kind of what everybody did. You're in a D group. You're getting discipled in a D group. And so I was like, okay, I guess I should start one of these groups. And I didn't know a lot, but I was feeling 
um, stirred to invest what I was experiencing. And so I just invited these people that God had kind of brought into my life. I said, you want to, be, you know, you want to start a D group? So it's kind of weird when you're like, you're going to lead it. You are saying, do you want to follow me in a sense? And a few people said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. That sounds good. They were believers, but they weren't really growing in their faith. And we got on the back porch of my house and we just went on this journey over about a year. And that first group, um, those are my like, best friends today. So, I mean, I didn't know it was going to come out of that. But there was a stirring to invite people in. And I, I just wonder, maybe you have people that God's highlighted to you and you know who you're supposed to invite. But maybe it's just people that are just kind of annoyingly in your life. They're like beating down your door. They want to be around you. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's just a friend. You're kind of acquaintances, but you can tell they want time with you. Can we get a coffee? Can we get together? Are we paying attention to that? You know, one of the uh, ways that we talk about that, that's like a person of peace in your life that God's bringing into your life. Jesus says, if someone is drawn to you, it's because they're drawn to me in you. If if you welcome them, you're welcoming, if they welcome you, they're welcoming me into their life. And so are we paying attention to who God's bringing into our life? So first is invite, then it's open, open our life. The hand motion here is this, it's invite, then it's open. I'm giving you access to my life. If you wanna make a disciple, it means you have to open your home, you have to open your wallet, you have to open your heart, it's an investment of every kind of capital that you have in your life. Financial, physical, you're showing up to meet with them. You're putting in the time. It's emotional, you're listening. You're listening. People need to understand that, that we care about them first. What's going on in your life? Jesus was so good about meeting people where they were. It's an emotional investment. It's a spiritual investment. We're opening our lives. We're saying, God, I'm gonna open time to pray for this person. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from God on your behalf. I'm taking time to lift you up before God. It's a spiritual investment to share those simple things, those encouragements, those scriptures, those words of wisdom that God gives us for the people we're pouring our life into. It seems simple, but most people are not getting that kind of investment. They're not being intentionally encouraged. They're not having someone saying, I wanna speak the words of God over your life. It's, it, it feels small, but it's a huge deal. In my life right now, we, uh, we got our three boys. One of them's in daycare. Two of them are um, out of school for the summer. And our Caleb, who's with me here, he's not five yet, so we couldn't get into all these summer camps. We're like, what are we gonna do? So we had to do with this nanny share with a few other kids in our neighborhood who, who had a similar situation. Somehow our house got picked. So most days during the week, there's between four and like 10 boys in our house. I mean, it's chaos. They're eating our snacks. I mean, they just ravish the snacks. The backyard smells like a toilet because they just go back there. I used to be fine with it. Like, yeah, just go behind that bush. Now we're like, it stinks. My wife is like, Boys, we have toilets. Use them. And I was having kind of a bad attitude about this, you know, because a couple days a week, I, I usually work from home. I have my office and all that stuff. And so I was kind of having a bad attitude about it. 
and God was convicting me, you know, invite people and then open your life. Like you got all these kids coming in your house, invest in them, be open to them. It's a choice to say, yeah, this is my stuff. These are, this is my space. And we want to be open to you. We want to invest in you. God was like, what a great opportunity. What a great opportunity to practice what you preach. <laughs> and so it's not always easy, but the people that opened their lives to us, it's changed us. I remember being in Buddy's house, being invited into his life. I remember being invited to go down to Midtown. Just come, let's get some food and I'll preach and do ministry. Just be a part, just watch. People invested in my education and my training as a leader. I'll never forget the sacrifices that people made. You can't see it at the time. I look back and say, wow, they made an investment. Are we willing to do what others have done for us? Are we willing to do that for others? So it's invite, it's open, and then it's release. It's release. Jesus says, you'll be with me and then I'll send you out. He says, come watch what I'm doing, and then I'm going to watch you do it. You're going to go. You're going to be empowered. There's an inviting, an opening, and then there's a releasing. This can sometimes be the most difficult phase of discipleship, to say, I'm going to release someone to step into what God has for them. It's difficult to release children into what God has for them. It's difficult in the same way to release people that we've invested into. They might... Make a choice or take a path that we don't even think is the best. Are we willing to release those God brings into our life? So this is not an easy call. I just want to be honest about that. Being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, is hard. Making disciples of Jesus is harder. This is a difficult work. We're talking about people. People are challenging. We know it because we live with ourselves. We are complicated, complex creatures, and the work of God in someone else's life is sometimes sudden. There's moments, there's miraculous moments, there's moments of awakening, there's moments of seeing this fruit, but most of it is not sudden, most of it is slow. Transformation is a slow process. Change happens slowly. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 4.19. He's saying to the Galatians that he's poured his life into. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says, I'm in this labor. I'm in this slow process walking with you because I want to see Christ formed in your life. This is discipleship. Cameron Walker, another pastor, Grace, and I were working on this message. We had the same disciple, and he said it this way. I thought this was so good. We are looking for an outward bang. God is looking for an inward birth. A birth takes time. It's a process. Christ is going to be birthed in the lives of those we're investing our life into. It is going to take time? Are we willing to do that? The example I want to show you of how Jesus shows us how to do this is in the life of 
John, if you look again at that list of disciples, it says James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. And I've never really dug into this, this name and this character until this summer, but if you look at that word, it's, it's, it's actually a negative connotation, a son of thunder. It's a negative connotation, and it, it, it actually is an Aramaic term that's derived from the Hebrew Ben Ragas. So Boanerges comes from Ben Ragas. Ben means son, and Ragas means tumultuous, violent, loud, or rage. So it's basically the characteristics of thunder. If you dig a little deeper, you figure out the first mention of this word is in Genesis 45, 24. You can write this down if you want to look at it later. Genesis 45, 24, and it's in reference to the brothers of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph, he is delighted in by his father Jacob, and his brothers are jealous of him. They hate him because of this favor. And so they come up with this scheme and they actually plot violence against him. So if you look at this word, the first mention of it is, is kind of describing this jealousy in his brothers, this ambitious scheming that they enter into, and then this violence that they plot. So when I looked at that, and when we, we studied this, we're going, okay, is this really what Jesus meant when he's talking about John? When he's saying, you're a son of thunder, are these things there, this jealousy, this ambition, scheming and this violence. And on first thought, you'd be like, no, that, that's not true. But if you look, if you do a deep dive into John's life, you actually see these three things. So again, I'll give you the references. You can, you can study this later if you want. But in Luke 9, 49, asking the question of do we see jealousy in the life of John, in Luke 9, 49, John has, has recently been chosen, you know, as a disciple. And just like the Mark 3 passage, he's been given this authority and so he's able to cast out demons. He's able to see the darkness flee as the kingdom of God is entering into people's lives. And so he comes to Jesus in Luke 9, 49. He says, we saw a group of disciples and they weren't us. They're not in our group. And they were casting out demons in your name. And I told him to stop. <laughs> he's proud of this. I told him to stop. They're not part of us. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, I need to correct you, John. You're missing the point. If they're not against us, they're for us. If they're doing my work, they're a part of us. And he's calling out the jealousy in John. Now, these, these disciples were young. I mean, John was, the, the, some people think they were teenagers, um, maybe early 20s at best. John is believed to be the youngest disciple. And he's, he loves this new He's a part of Jesus' group. I've been invited. Jesus has opened his life to me. I've got this access, and I've been given this authority. And he was jealous. He didn't want anybody else to have that. So you do see this jealousy in his life. What about the ambitious scheming? If you, if you read in Mark, and then it's in Matthew as well, Mark 10, 37, the, these two brothers, the sons of thunder, John and, and James, come to Jesus privately they come up with this little scheme and they go to Jesus privately away from the other disciples and they say, Jesus, we believe in who you are. We know that you're gonna, your kingdom is gonna be established. And when it is, 
We want you to give us the seats of honor. We want to sit at your right and your left. And Jesus says, okay, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you receive the baptism that I'm going to undergo? And he's speaking not of this worldly sense of greatness. He's talking about the cross. And, he, and they say, yes, we can. <laughs> they don't know what he's talking about. We can. Yeah, we can do it. We can drink the cup. He says, okay, you will. And he is giving, he's foreshadowing to them that the way they're scheming for authority and power to be the greatest is not the way of the kingdom. He says, I'm going to show you what greatness looks like through the baptism and the cup of self-sacrifice. I'm going to give my life for you and everyone else. I'm going to lay my life down. That's what true leadership looks like. And he goes on, the disciples, says, are indignant. They are so mad that James and John would scheme this way. And Jesus goes on to say, let me tell you about this power and this leadership you're seeking. He says, it's not the way the world operates. The greatest will become the least. The greatest among you will be seen by the way he or she serves the community. So James and John don't even really know what's going on, but Jesus is totally just flipping their plan upside down. And in another uh, account in Matthew, it says they send their mother to ask this. I mean, it's just dirty. They're like, we got this plan. Let's send our mom in. Jesus, this is like first example of like helicopter, you know, parenting, like send in the mother, you know, she'll work a deal. And, and I think the disciples have a right to be indignant. This, this was a violation of the fraternity, of their brotherhood. And, and so you see this scheming in John's life. He wants to get, he wants to use the discipleship to get something for himself. And then the last, the last characteristic, violence. Is there violence in John? Later on in that Luke passage, Luke 9, 54, after the jealousy moment, it says that Jesus is trying to go through a Samaritan village to get to Jerusalem because he's headed towards the cross. The Samaritans and the Jews had social contention. They were, they were bitterly opposed to each other. They had a long history of, of um, hatred, really. And so the Samaritans say, you're not going to come through here. And James and, and John say, Lord, should we pray and call down fire and destroy them? <laughs> Which is a pretty shocking response. Like, man, who, does, who responds that way? And Jesus strongly, rebu- he doesn't just correct them, he strongly rebukes them. He says, you do not know what spirit you're of. This is not my heart. This is not the way of the kingdom. And so you see this in John. He is a son of thunder. Jealousy, scheming, even violence. And it's easy to look at John and say, oh man, this guy's got a lot of work to do you're an idiot, or, you know, that kind of thing. But if I'm honest, I see these patterns of John in my life as well. It's so easy. I mean, how, how quick 
can our hearts turn to, to jealousy? Well, why, why does this always work out for this person? Look at what they're called to. Look at what God's doing in their life. Why can't I just have that? Why can't that be my path? It's easy for me to, we can just, we can fall into these little schemes and justify it. We can use scripture to justify it. We can explain all kinds of things. But at the heart level, what's really motivating us? I see myself in John. And even in violence, I wouldn't think that I would ever say, God, you know, kill this person, call down fire. But if somebody, you know, tries to scheme me or it seems like you're being manipulated or someone just lies or disappoints you in a way that, that they promised they wouldn't, how easy is it for us to have bitterness, frustration, even hatred well up in our hearts? I look at John and I see myself. And, and why is this significant? I think John's journey is so powerful because he clearly starts off as this son of thunder. A lot of unredeemed things. He's very unfinished. But then, by the time he writes his gospel, if you look at John chapter 13, the, the gospel of John verse, or chapter 13, it's at the Last Supper, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. He's known as the beloved disciple. This is his name. Later on in his life, church history and the, and the church fathers and mothers would call him the apostle of love. He goes from the son of thunder with all this unredeemed stuff to the apostle of love. How does that happen? That those are pretty different realities. And, and, and one thing I want to say about this, I, I, you know, when John refers to himself, he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. I don't think he's saying, I'm, I'm better than everybody else. I think I have a special place with Jesus that other people don't. I think what he's saying by this point in his life is he's going, I know how rough I was. I know how many dumb things I said, how many dumb things I did. I know all the ways that I was totally missing it. And Jesus didn't dismiss me. He didn't kick me out of the group. If you look at all of them, besides what Judas does at the end, John would be the easiest one to say, you know you're not gonna make the cut. You're too young, you're too unfinished, you've got too, many, you've got too much redemption that needs to happen in your life, and it doesn't happen. Jesus sticks with John. He pulls him close And I think John says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves because he knew in the depths of his person that Jesus loved him, that Jesus cared for him, that Jesus stuck with him through it. And that changed him. He goes through a transformation, son of thunder to the apostle of love. And I think the key of that transformation, there's three things I, I want to give you, but I think the key of it is right here in this John 13 passage. And I want you to see this. John 13, 21, it's the Last Supper. So Jesus is there with his disciples. They're having the Passover. 
and he's explaining what's, what's going to happen about the cross and about the spirit coming afterwards. But he says to them, he was very troubled in his spirit, and he says, truly one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. They're shocked by it. They can't believe this. They're professing their love and faithfulness to Jesus. So the fact that someone would betray him is shocking. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So they would have been reclining in the traditional way um, on these cushions leaning back on one another. But there seems to be even a special intimacy here shared between Jesus and John. One of them, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus. Leaning back, that the, 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 the word literally there is leaning against the bosom of Jesus. He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers him. It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And I think there's a key right here in this passage to the transformation of John. John leaned against the chest of Jesus. John got close enough to the person in the life of Jesus that the ways of Jesus rubbed off onto John. I think it's literal in this passage, but I think it's a metaphor for the transformation, the key to the transformation of John. He leaned back against the chest of Jesus and he learned a different way. No longer a son of thunder, an apostle of love. He experienced the divine love, the overwhelming love of God in the person of Jesus. This changed him. This changed him. What, what, what's one example of this? This is so powerful to me. When someone would dip the, the bread in the, in the wine and offer it to someone, it was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of intimacy. So Jesus just said, someone's gonna betray me. Who is it gonna be? It's gonna be the one that I'm about to bless. It's gonna be the one that I'm about to show a sign of intimacy towards. Jesus is demonstrating this sacrificial love, this love of soon-to-be enemy. We know we're called to love our enemies. Who, who actually does it? Jesus is modeling for John and the disciples, this is my way. He washed Judas's feet. That happened a little bit earlier. John, I think, got up close and personally. He goes, I haven't seen this kind of love. I haven't, I haven't seen that this way of Jesus, it's different. I got close enough to him and it changed me. Changed my life. Are we spending time with Jesus this way? Are we hungry to know the ways of Jesus? Are we experiencing this transformation 
that John did. There's no substitute for being in the presence of Jesus and, and metaphorically leaning back against his chest. Is the presence of God with us in all things? Absolutely. But I have a very difficult time being aware of it if I don't intentionally have time with Jesus where I say, this is what I'm doing. Turning off the phone, shutting it down, tuning in, I want to be with you. I want to lean, I want to, I want to be in this moment like John had with you. I want to hear your heart. What's your heart? Lord, what do you want to whisper to me? What questions do you want to ask me? What correction do you want to give me? I think John spent time with Jesus. And the second thing is that he was humble enough or broken enough to actually receive the correction and the rebuke of Jesus in his life. All these examples that we looked at, he does something and then Jesus corrects him. <laughs> Jesus gets him back on true north. That's not the right spirit. That's the opposite of what we're going for. This is my way, John. This is a big part of his transformation. Are we willing to be corrected? Has someone spoken words of correction or rebuke in your life? Have you been able to receive it? If I can't receive words of correction and rebuke from someone that I can see, I don't want to trick myself into thinking I can receive words of correction or rebuke from God who is unseen. And my experience has been God speaks very, the Holy Spirit is gentle. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But as we sit with him, he points out, hey, these are some ways. Your life's out of whack. Are you done trying to do this on your own? <laughs> are you done trying to operate in that way? Here's the way of the kingdom. This is the good way. This is the ancient path. Walk in it and you'll find rest for your soul. I think John was open to this correction and rebuke, and it, it changed, changed him. And then the third thing is that I think John decided to change. He experienced transformation in the presence of Jesus. He received these words of, of correction and rebuke, and then I think he made a decision. This is who I want to be. I don't want to be a son of thunder. I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to follow you. He decided to change, and the reason I say that is because he makes it further than anybody else. Everybody says they're gonna be with Jesus even to death. We won't abandon you. We'll die for you. We'll go to jail. Who's left at the cross? Only John remained. And Mary, his mother, and a few of the women in the inner circle who walked with Jesus. John's the only one who makes it. And in that moment, he, he's showing his faithfulness. I've decided to change. I want to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, right before he, he dies, gives up his spirit, he says, he turns to John and he says, John, this is your mother. Take care of my mother. 
Joseph's out of the picture by now, we think. Take care of my mother. Mother, take care of John. He's the youngest. He has a special place in my heart. I've seen his heart. I love him. Be with him. Church history tells us that John would stay with Mary until she died in Ephesus. He fulfills that promise. And the book of Acts says that John was a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. I think John decided, made a decision to change, and he was faithful to the end. By the end of his life, John is believed to have lived the longest. He plants these churches in Asia Minor. He's the apostle of love. And towards the end of his life, some stories say that he, he was thrown in boiling oil, but it didn't kill him. We're not exactly sure, but we know he's disabled at the end of his life. He's in his 80s or his 90s, and they're carrying him around on this cot. And he would just pass through the churches and spend time with the churches that he helped to plant and to pastor. And at the end of his life, what he would say over and over to the churches is, love one another. Love one another. My dear children, love one another. This is his legacy. From son of thunder to apostle of love. And I'd just like to encourage us, maybe you have some sons and daughters of thunder in your life. (laughs) We don't know what can happen in a person's life. We do not know the impact they can have. Nobody who knew John back then would have said this is going to be the impact of his life. We're still talking about the impact of his life. We don't know what can happen. I just want to encourage you as we invest in those, as we labor in the slow work of God. We trust God with the transformation. We say, Lord, raise up Johns. Raise up apostles of love. Do a work in our day. Do a work in the people that we're investing in that would just blow us away that we even had a part of it when we saw the full picture. We all start as little seeds, but everybody can grow into this oak of righteousness. That's the vision that God has. So as the band comes, I'd love to just enter into a moment of prayer just to take some inventory of who you know God's called you to invest in and it's just committing to that, or maybe it's a time of prayer to say, Lord, who who have you called me to invest in? Don't say that you have nothing to offer. Those who say they have nothing to offer end up offering nothing. God's calling us to invest what we have, not what we don't. And so I'd love to enter into a time of prayer specifically for those God would lead us to invest in, and then we're going to have a time to come to the table. 
And as we read that passage, what a beautiful symbol of intimacy and friendship with Jesus that we would come and receive. Jesus says, every time you do this, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. See yourself at that table receiving this bread and this wine, this new covenant. See yourself receiving it from Jesus as a sign of blessing and intimacy and friendship to you. Let's be renewed at the table to say, Lord, renew my strength. Let me lean back against your chest afresh and experience your love, your power, your presence. Lord, fill me with what I need to do this work of making disciples that you've called each and every one of us to. Come, confess your weakness, confess your need. God loves to get in low places. He says he lifts the humble up. We come with our need, we come with our humility, we come with our hunger, we come with our brokenness, and he meets us in that place. What an opportunity we have this morning. And so Lord, I pray that that journey that John went on, where you transform these thunderous ways within him, this angst and this anxiety, this unknown, him trying to be something and make something of his life. You transformed all of that into this divine fire of of love, this passion that he had to love the way that you loved. And Lord, we invite that work. We want that for our life. We want that for those we're investing in, Lord. We want them to go on that journey. Help us teach others. Help us teach the next generation how to lean back and live close to the chest of Jesus. Help us know how to do that, Lord. Give us the words. We often don't know the words. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. But you promise that you will fill us with your spirit and give us the words we need. You'll tell us how to say it. So we offer ourselves afresh to you this morning, Lord, that you would help us do this work. I pray that we see so much fruit in our discipleship, that even though it's a hard work, it's a joy. I pray we'd see the fruit, we'd see the work that you're doing, the transformation that you're bringing. Pray that we would see that. Give us eyes to see that. Lord, we just take a moment to be grateful for those who have invested their life into us. Lord, thank you that people took the time to see us, to focus on us, to pour into us, to open their life to us. Thank you. We want to be grateful for that. Where would we be without that? Thank you. Lord, we pray that gratitude would fuel our passion, our desire to do that same thing for others. Lead us in that this morning, Lord. We thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you want to sit and have some time just to continue to pray, you can do that. If you want to come to the table, the table is open. We'd love to invite you to partake.